All right, love where you live, love where you live, part three. That's what we've been talking about uh, the past couple of weeks. We've been talking about this idea of what does it look like to love where we live. Wherever we find ourselves, whether that's in our communities, our neighborhoods, where we work, our our schools, um, and our families, like what does it look like to be people who are known for the way that we love other people? Um, to, to love others really, really well. This is an important idea to us as a church, and the reason it's so important to us as a church is because it's a really big deal and it's important to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was pressed on this topic, on this issue, and he was asked, what's the most important thing? He said, it's, well, it's, it's two parts, but it's one thing. It's love God with everything you have, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, this is a really big deal. Like, like this is mission critical. This is at the core of what it means to say, I'm a person of faith, I'm following Jesus. At the center of that is, okay, that means that I love the people around me. It's a big deal, it's important for followers of Jesus, but even if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, you're here with us or, or you're watching online, you'd say, I'm not sure where I'm at with faith. I don't know really what it is that uh, I believe, I'm, I'm exploring. Um, I think no matter where you're at or what your story is, what your faith perspective is, where you are in life, I think we would all agree that loving our neighbors is a good thing, that it's an important thing, uh, that, that it would actually help out in, in what we see around us. I, I think we would all agree loving our neighbors is good because I think all of us would agree that we want to love where we live because we want the places where we live to be better places. I mean, no matter who you are or, again, where you stand with faith, you would say the place that I live, my community, wherever I'm from, I want it to be better. Even if it's great already, I want it to be better. Like, we all want to have great schools where, that are well-resourced and safe and, like, a great place for our kids. We all want the different organizations in our community to thrive and, and make our communities great. We all want to see local businesses thriving and growing and providing opportunities and employment for people. We, we all want to see uh, kids have a brighter future. We, we want to see uh, parents and families winning at home. I think all of us would love to see a level of, of honor and respect and civility brought back to our public discourse where we can disagree with each other but still treat each other as human beings with dignity. Like, we all want that. If, if I could put it, like, boil it down into a phrase, no matter who you are, where you're from, where you're at in life, we would say that, that we, we want to see human flourishing where we live. Like, I just, I want to see, I want to see human beings flourishing and stepping into, as, as a follower of Jesus, I would say stepping into what God has for them. We'd say, yeah, yeah, I want to see that. And we may disagree about how to get there. And some of us would say, how do you do that? And, and you might jump to straight to, like, legislation, and there's things that we can do to promote human flourishing. Others may say, well, it, it, um, we need to take more personal responsibility to promote human flourishing. Some people may say, well, we need to, to lean heavy on uh, public organizations and charities and nonprofits and churches to to push human flourishing. Other people may say, I don't know, I think it's a combination of all of those. And so we may debate and discuss about how best to do that, but I think we would all come to the place where we say, you know what, loving my neighbor is probably a good thing. Like it's probably, it's probably an important part of that. Like, like, it's certainly not going to help, or it's certainly not going to hurt anything. Like, nobody's going to be like, you know, you're seeing, you're loving your neighbor. Nobody's going to be like, hey, cut that out, okay? You're causing too many problems by loving your neighbor. No, we're like, yeah, that's probably a good thing. And so we're asking in the series, well, what does it look like to do that? How exactly do we love our neighbor? So the first week, we, we talked about the importance of just the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. That, that Jesus said this is the, the first and the greatest commandment. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That those, those two things are connected together. 
that if we, if we want to love the people around us really well, from a Christian perspective, that means we start with having a, a devotion and a commitment to God. That it, like, our, our love for our neighbor flows out of the fact that, I mean, I love, I love Jesus, like, with every, every fiber of my being, like, everything. I'm all in. I'm completely devoted. I'm, uh, he has my allegiance. There's nothing else that's taking top priority out of my life, and it's really only out of that posture that I'm able to truly love my neighbor. Because any time, like, something else becomes the, the primary thing in my life, Anytime something else takes primary importance in my life, whatever it is, whether it's job or career or family or identity or politics or sex or success or whatever it is, and that becomes the thing I serve, there will come a moment where I'm, I, I know I need to love my neighbor, but that thing says, no, you can't, you can't love your neighbor. You've got to pursue me. But in those moments, if Jesus is our top priority, we look to him and he goes, yeah, you can love your neighbor because when you look at me, you see the ultimate display of love and sacrifice. So it starts with love God, love your neighbor. And then last week, we, um, we talked about kind of taking that a step further. That it's not enough to just love our neighbors if our neighbors are just the people that look like us and think like us and agree with us. That we're actually called to love our enemies. Like those that disagree with us, that don't like us. That we're, we're, we're called to love the people who if given the opportunity, they would do us harm. They'd love to see us fall. They'd love to see us fail. That we meet them with love as well. But that's a radical kind of Jesus thing to do, and it's what our world desperately needs. I mean, sometimes I think, like, we, we, we are so, like, the, the cultural moment that we are in, we're so isolated, we're so siloed, we can actually begin to think, I'm good at loving people, that is, the people that are just like me, that fall into my tribe or my group or, or what I think is important. But when it comes to loving them, not so good at that. And Jesus calls us to a, a third way of living. It says, no, don't retaliate against your enemy, and don't just be passive, but actually actively love your enemies. So what I want us to do today is look at a story that Jesus told, a really famous story that actually illustrates both of those ideas. It's this beautiful picture of what it looks like, what neighbor love looks like, and also what enemy love looks like. Both of them at the same time, and what it does is it gives us these really, really kind of practical, tangible handles of how can I hold on to this love my neighbor thing? Like, how do I take this from being more than just an idea to something that I actually live out, to something that I actually do? It brings clarity to the idea of loving our neighbor. Because love your neighbor, it sounds great, but it's not necessarily tangible. Like, I mean, I can preach, be like, hey, let's go love our neighbors. And you're like, yeah, let, what, let's love our neighbors. But if we never really drill in and say, well, what does, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? Like, who's my neighbor, and, and how do I love them, and how much, and what exactly is this love that you're talking about? Like, when we don't get clear around those things, it's really easy not to do anything. Like, this, is this weird thing in life where clarity around something leads to action, and ambiguity around something leads to inaction. Like, when something is really, really clear, I, 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 all of my excuses go away. But when something's kind of ambiguous, when we, we haven't been really clear, when there's no details around something, it's easy to kind of go, well, you know, the reason I didn't do that is because I just didn't know. But the minute that there's clarity, I have a choice to make. It's like, ah, I can't use I don't know anymore as an excuse. I come to this place where I either decide, okay, I know what I have to do. Now it's either I'm going to do it or I'm not. Like clarity is kind of terrifying in that way, and sometimes that's why we choose not to have clarity. We're like, no, nah, I'm not going to think about it too much because I, I don't want that to sit on me of knowing I know what I need to do, but I'm not going to do it. And the story that Jesus tells brings incredible clarity to this idea of loving our neighbors. Uh, so we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. 
There are four gospel accounts. Those are four accounts that tell us about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're all telling about the same Jesus, the same good news of the king and his kingdom. But they're told from different perspectives. They're intended to different audience. And so we're going to look at Luke's account. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I'll give you a second to go there or on a mobile device. If you're watching online, I'll give you a second to do that too. In fact, if you're watching online and you don't have a Bible right with you, you can go and run and get yours and no one will know. But nobody in the room is going to do that because they're like, I'm not getting up. I'm not doing it. But that's okay because the words are going to be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. I love Luke's gospel. It might be my favorite because of the way that Luke thinks. Uh, He's a historian. He thinks very orderly. Things are kind of detailed and he lays things out and that tends to be how my brain works as well. But I also love the perspective from which Luke writes because Luke's gospel, it highlights and it it, it lifts to this, this position of importance those who society has deemed unworthy and unwanted and unimportant, those who are the outcasts, Luke highlights them as, hey, this is who the kingdom is all, who it's for, it's what it's about. It's about those that society or the religious systems have said, you're no good. Uh, And so I love that perspective that Luke takes, and it shows up big time in the story that Jesus tells today. Um, So we're going to read a couple of verses that set up the story. It's an interaction that, that Jesus is having with someone, and then he tells a story to make his point. Um, and if you're familiar with this, it's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, so if you know it, here's what I want to do. I want you to kind of suspend what we think we know about it already and try to hear this fresh to see the, the point that Jesus is making. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, here's what we read. That on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? there's a guy who's a teacher in the law. He's, he's an expert. He would have been a Jewish man who was a, an expert in what we would now call the Old Testament. Um, they didn't call it the Old Testament. That was just the Jewish scripture. They would call it the, the law and the prophets. Um, it was the Old Covenant. It was just the law, the law of Moses. What we would now call the Old Testament, that was like their Bible. And this guy is an expert in it. He knows it inside and out. He knows everything about it. And he comes to Jesus and, and he, he asks this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, what do I have to do to be good with God? Like, what do I have to do to enter into, like, the life that is in the age to come? They they thought about this idea of eternal life differently than we do. You know, when we think eternal life, we think, okay, there's my life that I'm living, and then I die, and what happens after I die? Like, that's kind of the two parts that we think of. We think of my life now, and what happens, you know, after I die, like eternal life. We think of this idea of earth, and then heaven, you know, go to heaven, and there's clouds, and angels, and floating, and harps, and I want us to get that idea out of our head entirely, because that idea is actually not in the Bible anywhere. That is very much a cultural idea um, that we've, you know, seen in movies and TV shows and artwork of little floating, chubby, harp-playing angels. Um, that's not the idea they have when they think eternal life. Uh, to, to, Jewish, to the Jesus' original Jewish audience, to the authors of the New Testament, they thought about eternal life. There's kind of like two ways or two uh, time periods that they would think about. is the present age and the age to come. And the present age is what we see around us now. The present age is just, it's the world as we know it. It's broken, it's, it's sinful. Man, there's, there's death and disease and, and hatred and violence and injustice all around us. And there's, there's powers and principalities of darkness that are at work, that are damaging people. Like, that is the present age. And then the age to come is when Jesus returns and, and, and fully institutes God, God's rule and reign on earth. When God's justice and his love, his mercy, his goodness, his kindness just permeate every bit of creation 
And so they got the, the present age and the age to come. And the eternal life is this idea of how do, I, how do I inherit life in the age to come? Not just how do I go to heaven after I die, but how do I ex- experience the rule and the reign of God? And this guy is asking this question, and he's, he's not realizing that, that eternal life Life in the age to come has actually come breaking into the present age in the person of Jesus. Like, the the life that is in the age to come is standing right in front of him in the person of Jesus. And Jesus talked about this idea all the time. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. He, He said that I've come to give you life abundantly. Life to the fullest. And this guy's like, how do I get that? I want eternal life. I I want this life in the age to come. How can I, how can I make sure I've punched my ticket into that? What do I have to do? It's an interesting question because it's really a question that we still ask. We may not ask it the same way. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? But, but every worldview, every system, whether it's a religious framework or not, is getting at this question. Like, wh- what, what are the things that I have to do to experience what Jesus would call life to the fullest? Like full and abundant life. And again, different religions have a different way of talking about that. Non-religious people have a way of talking about that. But they're, they're, we're all asking that question, like, what, what are the things that I have to do to make sure I experience the good life, the full life, life abundantly? That's what makes Christianity so different, is there is nothing that we can do. Like, every other worldview, every other religious system, everything has, has their answer for here's what you have to do. Believe these five tenets. Do these 25 things. Live a certain way. Make sure you kind of talk about the right to- like cultural talking points and say the right things. And if you will just do these things, then you will be good and you'll experience true life. And can I just say how crushing that is? To feel the pressure all the time to be like, I have to do these things and if I do these things, I'll actually get to experience life. And if I can just make sure I'm good enough and make sure I do these things and make sure I do whatever my tribe or my, my people say I have to do, if I can just do that, like, that is not a weight that we are meant to bear. And so the beauty of the message of Jesus, it's the only way of viewing the world that comes along and says, when you ask the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. In fact, the, the answer actually is, what do I have to do? It's kind of bad news to begin with. The bad news is, oh, sorry, you can't do anything. You can't. And you're like, well, that stinks. But the good news on the other side of that is it's already been done for you. Like the, 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 the message of Jesus is you can't inherit eternal life. You can't earn this, this life in the age to come. But because of what Jesus has done through his life and death and resurrection, it's offered to you as a free invitation. And so the premise of this guy's question is a little bit off. And I wanted to camp out here for a second before we move into the Good Samaritan. Because the Good Samaritan is, you know, it's, it's familiar. Many of you may know the story. And it's like this beautiful picture of what does it look like to be a neighbor? But, but if we don't first start with this idea of we don't earn that. It's not our good works that put us right with God. It's not our good works that, 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 that allow us to enter into his kingdom. If we lose sight of that and just move straight into the Good Samaritan, here's how we love our neighbor, it's so easy to then move to this place where it's like, I gotta do these things, I gotta do these things, I gotta do these things so I'll be good with God, I gotta do these things so I'll be a good Christian, I gotta do these things so I'll step into life how I want it to be. And the the tragedy of that is loving our neighbor and, and giving our lives away, like as a follower of Jesus, to give your life away, it is actually a life giving thing. To spend yourself on behalf of other people, it can be life-giving, but only when you start from the position of, I'm not earning anything. Like Jesus has welcomed me. His life, his death, his resurrection, he has said, you are worthy, you are valuable, I've died for you, come into my kingdom. When I start with that, and then I go out about loving my neighbor, man, that's life-giving. 
But when I miss out on that first part and I just go about trying to do things because I feel like that's what I have to do, that'll suck the life right out of you. And all of a sudden, they become things that I have to do and I dread doing. And not only that, but it's easy to become so judgmental because I begin to think I'm doing the right things. Look at me. Look at me. Do you see how much I gave? Did you see how much I served somebody else? And so this, this guy's question is just has the wrong premise to begin with. The good news of Jesus is there's nothing that you can do to earn your way into this new life, but once you've experienced it, now you're free to actually really go and love people. And so he asks this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? <laughs> like, okay, you're an expert in the law, right? You're a teacher in the law. You tell me, you should know this. And the man responds, love you, the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now it would seem as though this guy's been listening to Jesus at some point, either that or he got some inside information from somebody else that had listened to Jesus, because Jesus taught this idea, he took these two Old Testament commands and brought them together and says this is the one like new kind of command, this is love God and love people, everything boils down to that. And so this teacher of the law is like, oh I know the answer to this one, love God and love people. Did I get it right Jesus, did I get it right? And Jesus answered, you've answered correctly. You've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. Congratulations, you got the right answer. Now all you have to do is do it. And we're like, that's great, that's wonderful, I, I can do that. Until you start to think about how hard that actually is to do that. Because it's not like I just did it once, it means I perfectly have done this my entire life. And so he's like, if you can perfectly love God your entire life, Meaning like for every moment of every day, every second, I am 100% devoted to God. I've never, I've always looked to God for all of my needs. Like I've never looked anywhere else for my sense of security or worth or dignity or value or identity. Like I've, I've always found that in God. I've never elevated anything else above him. Not family or career or success or any of those things. Like I'm always 100% in on God and I've always loved my neighbor as myself that there has never been a moment in my life where I, I had the opportunity to choose to do what was best for somebody else or choose to do what was best for me, and I've never chosen to do what's best for me. I've always only done what's best for other people. At which point we're like, oh crap, because you can't do it, right? You can't do it. And again, it brings us back to the premise of this guy's question, thinking that I can somehow do these things. But this teacher of the law kind of moves right past that. He's like, yeah, 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 I got that, got that. Love, you know, if I love God, love neighbor, I, I can inherit eternal life. I'm good, I'm good. And then he asks this question. In reply, he said, he it said he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be able to say, I'm good, I've done it. I've got the seal of approval. Jesus, look at my resume. But I think he's also smart enough to know that he can't really do that. So this task of loving my neighbor has got to be made manageable. So who is my neighbor? Like, show me exactly, can you tell me who my neighbor is? If you could just give me a list of the people that I have to love, and I'll make sure every day that I love them. Like, who is it? Like, do I gotta love, you know, my, my family, and my, is like the, my, my coworkers, and the guy that lives next to me, and even my in-laws, I will love them. Can I do that? Like, like that, that's it. If, if that's my list, I'll make sure I try really, really hard to do that. Jesus, just tell me who my neighbor is, and I'll, I'll make sure that I love him. And it's with that setup of him asking who his neighbor is, kind of behind this question of, of what does it look like to be a person of the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life. Can you tell me who a neighbor is? 
And then Jesus tells this really famous story. He says, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And so Jesus launches into this story, and it's, it's a made-up story. He's making up the story to prove a point, but it was a very real situation for his audience. He talks about this journey going from Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, and that was a journey that people would make. Uh, it wasn't a very long journey by our standards. I think it's about 17 miles, but when you're walking that journey, it's a long way. It's a major drop in elevation. It drops, like I think, like 1,500 feet from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, and it was this very desertous place. There were rocks everywhere. There's all these places where robbers and thieves and bandits would hide out behind the rocks, and as people are making this journey, they would jump out, they would beat them, they would rob them, and leave them there for dead. And so as Jesus is telling this story, Everyone in his audience is going, oh yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. It's not just a story to them, it's life. They may have known people, yeah, you know, I had a cousin, I had an uncle who, who that happened to. Like, he, he, he barely made it, or I know someone who didn't make it. They were just left there for dead and no one, no one found them. And so he, he's able to connect to his audience that has them all going, okay, we're with you, we're tracking. And so this guy is, is laying there half dead, and, and here's what happens next. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And, and so Jesus highlights two different people. The first person is a priest. They were like in charge of the temple. They were in charge of the sacrificial system. Uh, they were like the point person, the representative between the people and God. They would make all the sacrifices and do all those things. Really important person, a priest. And then the Levites were a part of the religious system as well. They were part of the temple sacrificial system. They were one of the tribes of Israel and their responsibility was to, to make all the other things happen in the temple that had to happen. To make sure that like, the, 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 the sacrifices were ready and make sure everything was maintained and everything was up to code so that the religious system could carry on. And so you have these two people, the priest and the Levite, who are supposed to be like the picture, the representation of of Judaism, of, of a person. If there's someone who's connected to God and is going to do the right thing in this culture, you would think it's the priest and the Levite. But they pass by on the other side. They're coming along and they see this guy laying there and they intentionally cross the road to get away from him. Now we don't know why. Jesus doesn't give those details. But we can read between the lines and we can make some assumptions. You know, we're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. The temple is in Jerusalem. And so maybe they're leaving Jerusalem and they're on their way somewhere else and they've been serving at the temple and maybe they're just tired. You know, I don't have to, I, I'm just so tired. I've been, I've been doing God's work all day long and trying to get somewhere else. Or maybe they're on their way to the temple and, and they just don't have time to help this guy because they're so busy because they've got important God stuff to do. They've got to go to the temple and do the religious things. Or, or maybe it's because in, in their law and their custom, if you were to touch a dead body, you'd be ceremonially unclean. You couldn't You couldn't worship. They couldn't serve in the temple, so maybe they see this guy laying there, and they're like, I don't know, he might be dead. We can't get too close to him because then again, we can't go and do any important God things, so let's make sure we cross on the other side. And the words that Jesus says next would have been shocking. There, there would have been a, an audible groan in his audience when he says, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And it was a hatred that went back hundreds of years. 
the, the, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, both ethnically and like spiritually. And it was, they had a long history together. There were some dark points in the nation of Israel. And at one particular time, the nation was carried into exile by the nation of Babylon. Many of the people were brought out, but some of the Israelite people were left behind in the land. And the Babylonians had other people move in. It's all this mixing and mingling, right? We're all Babylonians. And so some of the, the Jewish people intermarried with people that weren't Jewish. And they had kids with them. And that was seen as a major, like, you don't do that under the old covenant that Israel was not supposed to intermarry with the peoples around them. And th- those, those children that they had was the birth of the Samaritans. And so the, 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 the Jewish people that didn't do that, they saw this going on and they just, man, they hated them. Again, half-breeds in terms of ethnicity, in terms of, of spiritual heritage, they didn't worship the right way. They hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them right back. There's hundreds of years of this history going on. And Jesus highlights this Samaritan as coming by and almost being the hero of the story. Like this guy should have hated the Jewish man. He should, have, he should have seen him lying there and celebrated. He should have went up and kicked him while he was down. It was someone he would have not considered to be a neighbor. It's interesting that in a conversation about neighbors, the entire point of this conversation was, okay, who is my neighbor? And in a conversation about neighbors, Jesus highlights someone who would be considered an enemy, the Samaritan man. And we see what a true neighbor looks like in him. It says he took, he took pity on him and he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That was their money. It was about two days wages. Two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And Jesus pulls out of the story and addresses the guy who asked the question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him to go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. There are, there are two things in this, this story that Jesus tells that I want us to highlight and look at for a moment as we ask the question, what does it look like to love where we live? Like, how do we do that practically? What steps can I take if I wanna be a person that's known for loving the people around me? There's two things we need to put into practice. We need to practice presence and sacrifice. Presence and sacrifice. The first thing that we notice, like the thing that the Samaritan models uh, that, that, that is in stark contrast to the, the priest and the Levite is presence. He is present with the man who is hurting. And we cannot love where we live if we are never present where we live. Like you, it's impossible to truly love from a distance. It's interesting in the story, like, the, the, like Luke gives us the detail to, to make sure he lets us know that the priest and the Levite went out of their way to get away from the man. And the Samaritan man went out of his way to get to the man. It says that he came to where he was. As, as we go about our lives, as we engage with people, whether this is, uh, you know, at home in your relationships, in your neighborhoods, or at work, or wherever you find yourself, like, we are constantly confronted with that decision. There, there is no going through life and remaining neutral as it relates to, will I be near people or not? I either make a decision that I'm going to intentionally move towards people, or I'm going to intentionally move away from people. Like there, there is no in-between, and we see in this story the Samaritan man, the guy that is highlighted, he says, I'm going to intentionally move in your direction. 
and, and presence, it's more than just occupying the same space. It's more than just occupying the same physical space or even the same digital space because we can occupy the same space, like we can be in the same place, but not actually be present with one another. Like there's something deeper about presence. I mean, you can even take this morning right now, we are all here in this room and we're here online. We are, we are in the same space physically, but that doesn't necessarily mean we are present with one another. Like presence is a choice. You know, when you show up to church, you, you, you choose, am I gonna be present with the people that I am worshiping with or am I just going to physically be there? Am I gonna be present with the people that I'm, I'm tuning in online with or am I just, am I just gonna digitally show up there? Like presence is, is a choice. It's, it's saying I'm going to be intentionally immersed and engaged in a relationship. I'm showing up physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I am all in with this person. It's presence. When, as, as the church, like as, as God's people, when we don't show up, when we're not present with people, we actually rob people of God's presence. When we're not present, we rob people of God's presence because throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, the times of the nation of Israel, throughout the New Testament times in the church, God works through his people. The way that God shows up, the way he engages and works in history is by doing it through his people. The church, we are his people and we say, when we say, no, I'm not gonna show up, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be present with you, I'm not willing to step into that, I'm not willing to wade into the mess, I'm not willing to have a difficult conversation, I'm not willing to, to like, for this to cost me something, I'm not willing to uh, spend five minutes here or give you a ride there, I'm not willing to, to, to listen to you or have a shoulder to cry, like when I'm not willing to do that, I actually rob someone of, of God's presence. I may be robbing them of what God wants to do in their life through me. Like, like the church is the presence of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, like the, the Holy Spirit, God himself, he is living within you. And the Holy Spirit, he's not just, you know, he's not just the little angel dude on our shoulder that tells us when we're doing bad things. Like, yes, the Holy Spirit convicts us of how we are supposed to live, but he is so much more than that. He is the very presence of God. He is with you wherever you go. We take the presence of God wherever we go, and the, pro- the problem is we often don't go. And we're all about, about Jesus, man. We want people to find hope in him. We believe that there is hope in him. We believe there is healing, uh, that, 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 that people are set free, that addictions are broken, that relationships are restored all through Jesus, and we absolutely believe that, but we won't ever see that if we're not willing to show up in the lives of people and to be present with people, to be present in their reality, to be present in their joy, to be present in their pain, to be present in their struggle, to be present in their confusion. If we're not willing to go there, then they may not experience the hope of Jesus. And we can't just expect people to come to us. Like, I think that's the problem so often. We're like, I'll be present with you. Come meet me where I am. And whether that's in our individual lives, like, oh yeah, sure, I'd love to share the love of Jesus with you. I'd love to tangibly, to tangibly love you if you'll just get to me. We do it as a church too. I mean, we want you to know about Jesus. Just make sure you show up for this one hour on Sunday. But sometimes people can't or won't ever get to us, whether it's as a church or as an individual follower of Jesus. Sometimes people just can't get to you, or they're not able to get to you, or they're just not at a place where they can, and and that was the man in the story. The man in the story was broken and bleeding and left for dead on the side of the road. He was incapable of getting to the help that he needed. The help had to come to him. 
the priest, the Levite, they're like, hey, if you can just get to the temple, we'll help you. He couldn't get there. He needed someone to come to him and be present with him. The Samaritan went to him. We got to practice presence. So real practically, here's, here's what we do with that. Because I know it's like, oh man, I don't, I don't even know. Like I'm so, I'm so maxed out already. Well, we're going to talk about that. But the first thing, where it starts, is being present where you already are. A- every one of us are engaging with people on some level during our week. But are you more than just there with them? Are you actually present with them? Are you intentional where you already are? Are you present in your family? You know, if, if, if you know, the people who live with you, your, your direct family, your extended family, are you actually present with them or are you just living in the same house? You know, I know it's, it's Father's Day, so I don't want to rain on our, our parade, but I know for me this is a huge struggle, and I think this is, for, for whatever reason, this is just a, a guy struggle. I mean, maybe, ladies, maybe some of you struggle with this as well, but men, dads, it seems like we're, we're good at, like, I'm, I'm here, and I'll help you with whatever you need. But sometimes we're just not present. It's like, I'm, I'm here with my kids, but am I available emotionally, mentally, spiritually to them? Are you present with your family? Are you present where you work? I mean, are you, are you looking at the place you work as an opportunity to, to meet people where they are and so that people will discover the hope of Jesus? Or is it just like, I'm just putting my head down and I, I'm just doing, you know, I'm just getting my time in and I'm living for the weekend. And Saturday and Sunday come and I go back and I do it again. I'm just living for the weekend. And maybe God has you there for a reason. Are you present with the people you work with? Are you present with the people that, that live next to you? Like, do you actually know your neighbor's names? Like, your actual neighbor's. Do you know who they are? Do you know their story? Are we present where we are? Be intentional about where you already are. And then secondly, this, might, this is definitely, I think, the harder of the two, make space and slow down. It's impossible to be present if we'll never stop. It's when it's just go, go, go all the time. You see, I'm, I, got, I got things to do. I got things to get done. I don't have time for an interruption We'll never be present with people if we can't slow down long enough to know them, to hear them. So we've got to practice presence. That's the first thing that we see from the Good Samaritan. The second thing is sacrifice. You be present with someone long enough, eventually it's going to cost you something. That's what love requires. In fact, I, I would say if our love for any particular person never costs us anything, it's not actually love. Love always costs something. We see the Samaritan man, he, he sacrifices. He shows up, here, ride my donkey. I can walk. Wherever we're going, I'll walk. I, I'm gonna stay with you tonight. He stays overnight with the stranger. It's like, forget about what my other plans were. That can wait. I'm here with you. I'm sacrificing. I'm gonna pay for what you need. You know, here's two days. This guy, the two denarii is two days worth of wages. I, I don't know what you make or have made in your career. It's like, can you imagine just shelling out two days worth of wages to someone who probably hates you? You're like, here you go, whatever you need. And then he says, and I'll be back. And whatever else you need, I'll pay for that too. There's a consistency to it because sacrifice and generosity is not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. He's like, I'm gonna gonna be back. I'm gonna check on you. Whatever you need then, I'll be there for that as well. Sacrifice, generosity. We're generous with the things we already have. He was generous with his own donkey. Anybody have a donkey they can let someone use? Probably not. Probably not in today's culture. I mean, some of you might have a donkey and good for you. I don't know what you'd do with it. And but if somebody else could use it, let them use your donkey. But we have other things, right? Maybe someone doesn't have reliable transportation. You're like, you know, I don't live that far from work. I could walk. You could borrow my car until you get your feet under you. 
Maybe some of you have like a, a vacation home or a timeshare, and it's like, you know what, I don't need to use that all the time, and there's a family that's really struggling. Here, I want you to use that. You've got a skill that you can share with someone. Like, you know what, I, let, me, let me help you out with this. You've got a tool that someone can borrow. You know what, someone came to my, well, kind of came to my rescue this week. It didn't end up working, but I, we had a drain issue, which I spent almost the entire weekend working on. Um, and someone's like, here, I've got a snake. Use the little snake that goes on the end of the drill. I'm like, thank you so much. Like, what, what do you have? It's, it's, sometimes it's those little things. Like, what do I have that I can sacrifice for someone else? Be generous with the things we already have. Be generous financially. Like, give when there's an opportunity to give. Be generous with our time and then do it consistently. If we want to love where we live, it's about presence and sacrifice. I love what Jesus does here because he... <laughs> He ends it by saying, okay, which of these three was a neighbor? It's neighbor love isn't about who is my neighbor, it's about how do I neighbor. It's not about who is my neighbor, it's about how do I neighbor. Jesus flips this on his, on his head, he's like, this guy asked, who's my neighbor? He's like, forget about who your neighbor is, because the truth is, your neighbor is whoever is around you. Like, whoever you are, have the opportunity to love and to influence, that's your neighbor. Forget about who is your neighbor. The question is, how do you neighbor? You do it through presence, you do it through sacrifice, and so he says, okay, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. You want to love your neighbor? Go and do likewise. You want to love an enemy? Go and do likewise. You want to love where you live? Go and do likewise. Be present with people and be okay when it costs you something. Presence and sacrifice, and I know this is hard, and I know it's just a lot easier to be like, well, love, you know, we're supposed to love our neighbors, but we don't get to define what love is. Jesus already has. He says this is what it requires. This is what it looks like. And I know it's hard, but if you're a Christian, man, this is the way of Jesus. Presence and sacrifice is exactly what he modeled to us. He showed up. He wasn't willing to just, or content to just love us from a distance. The prologue to John's gospel says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, that the God of the universe put on flesh to be with us. I mean, I, 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 could, he, could he have done what he was going to do some other way? Did he have to actually like become human and get down into the mess of our reality? I don't know, but I kind of think, yeah, he did. Because there's something about love that can only be expressed up close and personal. He's present with us. He sacrificed for us. You heard Pastor Paul read that verse right before the message that said that this, this is love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's presence, it's sacrifice. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what he's done for you. No matter who you are, if you're a Christian, if you're not, the God of the universe wants to be present with you. And he has made the ultimate sacrifice so that can be a reality. And for those of us that call ourselves his followers, how can we do any different for the world around us? We're gonna love where we live. We're gonna be present. We're gonna sacrifice. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible truth. God, that you, you, you love us and that love was more than just words. It was more than just an idea, God, but it was, it was up close and personal. It was messy. It was gritty. Jesus, you stepped into time and space. You stepped into reality so that you could be near. You gave your life on a cross so that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us. 
We praise you that because of that, we are invited in to that life in the age to come. And it doesn't, doesn't just start someday in the future. It's available to us right now. I pray that we would be people that live in that reality, the reality of, of living in the age to come, the reality of experiencing your love in our lives. And I pray that it would transform us. I pray that it would change us so that no matter where we go, no matter where we find ourselves, that we would be present with people and we would sacrifice for people because that is what you have done for us. We pray these things in your name.